Are you ready, Kathy Barrett? I think so. Welcome to the show. Did you know that while we wait to meet Robert England's character, Victor Krill, in the new Stranger Things, we've also learned that he's going to be reteaming with director Dwight Little, who previously directed the horror icon in 1989's Phantom of the Opera. Nice. You know, they just finished a documentary on Robert England. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so like his... uh, Freddie character and his whole career stuff. Yeah. He just finished wrapping that. So I'll oh, be nice. interested to see that. I guess this guy Dwight is, you know, he also directed Halloween for the return of Michael Myers uh, and an episode of Freddy's Nightmares, but he's directing a film entitled Natty Knox. Mm. Two words, which we can only assume falls somewhere inside the horror genre. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess Bill Mosley is also going to be nice. in it. And I love that guy. So... We also, they, um, a social media post from Halloween 4's Daniel Harris suggests uh-huh. that Harris might be reuniting with um, Jamie in the little film. So, isn't that her? We'll check that out. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> Jamie. All right. <laughs> What's up, Kathy? Oh, well, watching the news the other day. Yeah. And you remember back when I said, I really don't want to have to rewatch There's Something About Kevin. Yeah. Did you hear about Ezra Miller? Go ahead. Yeah. So it's a little scary because he's, I'm sorry, they, they go by they, them. They are really starting to act at, you know, when I first watched this movie, I was like, either this kid is really good or this is them. (laughs) And Mm. if people are not, you know, up to date with what's going on with Ezra Miller. They were just arrested and uh, Grant is slapped with a restraining order for stalking this couple in Hawaii and then busting in on their hotel room, threatening to kill them. And, you know, more and more is coming about out about their behavior on sets and just in person, you know, just the personal life of this person in 2020, a video clip showing Miller choking a female fan in Iceland went viral, but Warner brothers never commented on it. But now all that this stuff has happened with uh, Will Smith and all the controversy there after this came out about Ezra Miller, they're like, well, clearly we cannot just ignore this. So all the production on Fantastic Beasts and The Flash, there's a lot of controversy about how they even acted on set. So it's a little uncanny and kind of creepy. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, very. Yeah. And I imagine that's why it's made so much news. Possibly. I mean, what's interesting is no one's bringing up that movie. They're bringing up Perks of a Wallflower. So Mm. it's really interesting. Like I was trying to find anything out there that was comparing the two characters and or, or them yeah. with the character and i that's not being drawn i mean maybe there's an implicit like but that's maybe, the first thing that's the jump right first on that. thing i thought of You'd because they were so that. convincing in that movie really great performance quote unquote yeah i, mean, I don't know right I mean, they always creeped me out. Their face, their eye. It, I yeah. could so much that even when they came out with Perks being a wallflower, I had a really hard time watching their character because, because of that. Just the, like, usually I can do that suspension of disbelief and kind of, like, I don't look at, I mean, I look at Anthony Hopkins as, as Hannibal, but on award ceremonies and stuff, he's Anthony you've Hopkins. Seen well, you've and seen him in so many other things. And yeah, and he also just doesn't, there's something about Ezra Miller's face that always made me feel like something energetically that always creeped me out a little bit. And maybe because the, that movie, Kev, you know, there's something, we need to talk about we need Kevin. To talk about Kevin, yeah. <laughs> there's something about Kevin. <laughs> well, there is, clearly. Uh, there's so much something about Kevin. Uh, maybe because it's not as popular a movie. Yeah, and it, yeah, maybe. And and the juxtaposition, they like, the media likes the juxtaposition between the Perks of a wall- Wallflower character mm-hmm. and what's happening in real life. Like, they like that dialectic yeah. or something more dramatic. So I just thought I'd bring that up because we've done an episode on, on yeah, that film. And absolutely. I was dreading watching it because it's so dark. <laughs> I know. It's yeah. very dark. I mean, I think it's an excellent it is. biopic almost. It really is. On a psychopath, so... I was reading an article, you know, our listeners give us lots of great articles, and this one is no exception. How to Murder Your Husband author on trial for husband's death. 
oh, well, I mean. Shocking. It's a rehearsal <laughs> manual. <laughs> right. So Nancy Crampton Brophy, a 71-year-old romance novelist, has authored nearly a dozen books, but it's a blog post she wrote in 2011 titled How to Murder Your Husband that now is turning heads, of course. So more than a decade after writing that post, Brophy is on trial for the murder of her 63-year-old husband. Apparently, Chef Daniel Brophy was found dead inside the Oregon Culinary Institute in 2018 as students arrived for their classes. This is like basic instinct. That's a day. Yeah, Catherine Trammell writes the novel. Exactly. So we'll see if this woman gets off too. Nearly four years after the well-known chef's shooting death, apparently shot in the kitchen. The murder trial is underway and expected to last weeks. And this article came out uh, in April. So one key point in the trial is that Crampton Brophy's how to murder your husband blog post has been excluded from the trial. Of course. I mean, you know, duh. the novel, they always, they always get it excluded because she's a fiction novelist. So sure. it would be kind of a no brainer for the, lawyers if they were any good the novelist wrote the post for a writer's workshop and it has garnered loads of attention since her arrest of course it's kind of like what you're talking about with your story is like you get those natural connections and here they really made one they made it (laughs) but the thing i know about murder she said in this post is that every one of us has it in them when pushed far enough so kathy and i will be brought up on charges for murder because we say that all the time (laughs) I mean, it's true. We're talking about the Stanford prisons experiment today, and we're going to be talking about social context and the, yes. the, the, you know, the capacity that we all have to go to that really dark place. Yeah. So this is this is on point with that. At the beginning of the trial Monday, this is a few weeks ago, the judge ruled that the blog post wouldn't be, you know, because it was written years ago, apparently, and quote unquote, substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice and confusion of the issues. The exclusion serves as a big win for the defense, of course, uh, that are trying to paint the Brophies as a loving couple who cared about one another deeply. And they'd been married for 27 years before, of course, the chef was gone down. On the contrary, the prosecutors are painting a picture of cash-strapped couple with a big life insurance policy as a ticket for financial freedom because Miss Brophy was the beneficiary of $1.4 million and that she asked law enforcement for a letter to sign to a life insurance company. So like immediately upon knowing he was dead, she was asking that question. Although you never know, grief is funny. Grief makes us do very interesting things in the shock, yep. in that shocking moment. I know it has, it has made me say really off kilter things in the past when people have died. So prosecutors are also pointing to Crampton Brophy's internet searches for ghost guns and her multiple gun purchases. While investigators believe this could have been the start of Crampton Brophy's alleged plans to kill her husband, the defense says it was all part of the research she was conducting for a novel. So that's convenient. She did enter a not guilty plea and she was held without bond since 2018 as expected to take uh, the stand in her own defense during the trial. So she's actually been in jail since... She was arrested. She's going to say she's been framed. I have no idea. I mean, if they're based, they're taking her story. I mean, that would be the only defense I think she would be able to have unless she, yeah, I don't know what any of the other evidence is, right? We don't know who, like, I imagine the defense is coming up with other suspects, other people, you know, students in his culinary Institute, uh, you know, friends of the family. Maybe there's a mistress. I mean, we just don't know. Right. right. And they're not giving any evidence away, of course, in this article, which was from KTLA 75, by the way, is where I got that information. Okay. I think you have some events you wanted to chat about. Well, you know, I always like to keep the Halloween events going throughout the year. Fair. And so I, I, I take a look at what's going on in the country, and there's a few pretty cool things going on. Okay, so... Uh, events coming up nationally, there's three that looks pretty cool. cool. Um, the first one is Days of the Dead. Mm. That'll be taking place at the Crown Plaza in Rosemont, Illinois, Chicago area from May 13th through the 15th. Then the other one is Frankencon. I love the names of these two. <laughs> They're so fun. Frankencon is May 14th at the Hilton in Alcoa, Tennessee. And the other one is Crypticon in Seattle from May 20th through the 22nd. Wow. So these look pretty fun. I was they, very similar to the Monster Palooza that we're going to. I'm not sure if they're having, I'm sure they'll have people signing and stuff, but 
Sure. It looks very similar. A lot of different venues and uh, merchandise and signing and, uh, you know, all of the above. Looks fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. I can't wait for Monster Palooza. I know. I'm really excited this year, too, because we're past, like, the pop-up stuff. Or, and No, no. It's a real big old thing, yeah. right? Two days. We're, we're getting a hotel. It's yeah, that we're going to stay the night. Like, we're committed. Yeah. Black t-shirts will be worn. <laughs> yes. Come find us if you're in the area. <laughs> Absolutely. I wanted to share one other article here before we get to... Uh, how honeybees could find could, could help find bodies of missing people. Ooh, right. Another one shared by probably Pepper. Not don't remember. <laughs> Pepper and Blue shared a bunch of really great articles. So I'm going to share them over the course of the next few episodes. So honeybees could become the latest crime fighters to help locate the bodies of missing people. At George Mason University in Virginia, the Honey Bee Initiative and the Forensic Science Research and Training Laboratory. I like the Honey Bee Initiative. Yes. HBI. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's a new t- crime show. And CIS. It just buzzes for HBI. 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they're teaming up to find out if the honey produced by bees can help investigators crack cold cases. So more than 600,000 people go missing in the United States every year. So obviously we could need, we need some help from the bees. According to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, while many of those individuals are found alive, tens of thousands remain missing and an estimated 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered each year. That's awful. Mm-hmm. Bee honey contains proteins with biochemical information about what the bees have eaten. Alessandra Lucini, a bio, a biologist at GMU, developed a process to extract the proteins, I guess, from the honey and determine if the bees had ingested pesticides. Mm. So she brought this research to the forensic science program, and they're the ones who are doing the honeybee experiment. So they're trying to team up with that. Falsetti explained to Newsweek, we thought, well, if bees are feeding on flowering plants that are near decomposing bodies, would the chemical compounds of human decomposition be part of the proteins that the bees ingest? And if they ingest, will they deposit in their honey? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it could be it could be interesting. I mean, there's this former FBI agent, Mary Ellen O'Toole, who said a lot of times the victims are left outside. They're left in the environment and the environment can do some crazy things to human remains. It could be the result of the weather. It could mm-hmm. be a result of predators or bugs. All of those things can impact the decomposition. But the researchers, researchers identified a heavily wooded one acre section of the outdoor forensic lab at the GMU to perform their experiments. So a total of 160 unique plants with highly scented flowers are being planted in the area. And by the end of April, researchers will bury donated human remains in 18 to 24 inch deep graves. Cause apparently that's the, that's how deep we dig them. Okay. When we bury bodies, just FYI. Thank you. Falsetti said they are working with local law enforcement to mimic the graves that killers use in real cases, which tend to be relatively shallow. So the Virginia State Anatomical Program is providing those corpses, and they're going to give it a shot and see if they've got a brand new crime-fighting tool. Wow. Yeah, so once you get those human remains, then you can begin the analysis of what happened, and the important thing is to make sure that you determine what happened. And That's then, crazy. Yeah, I know. Like the, Then the sooner that they can do that, the more likely they can identify the offender as well. Not only can they identify the body, maybe, right. I don't know, but also identify the defender. I guess scientific advancements have recently been used to crack Several cold cases, not not this particular science, but this would be one of those pieces of science that would probably be able to crack cold cases, right? It'd be new, something new they could try. Mm-hmm. So very cool. There you go. All right. And on that note, about <laughs> about dead things. <laughs> this is a little segment we like to call. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's actually called Horror Facts with Kath, but, you know. You couldn't get that from that? I, I mean, if I was new, no. Okay. <laughs> Horror Facts 
with Kath. Right on. I'm Kath. Hi. Number one. Uh-huh. George Romero's first job behind the camera. Whoa, she's so strong. Was on what children's show? Number two. Oh, and there's a Discord person's question in this bunch. Thank you. Number two. What famous actor and Academy Award winner was offered the lead male role in Hocus Pocus? Huh. All right. Clearly he didn't take it. but And by Discord, she means our patrons. Yes. Just throwing that out there. Number three. In which movie is the killer's identity foreshadowed as Don't Fear the Reaper plays in the background of the first scene? Hmm. Okay. Number four. <laughs> in order to film the premonition scene in Final Destination 3, the actors had to ride the roller coaster blank amount of times. Oh, God. That is, oh, my nightmare. And number five. Whenever you're ready. I'm ready. The original ending of Bram Stoker's Dracula had Mina plunging a Bowie knife into Dracula's heart. When Coppola offered a private screening to his close friend, this famous and incredibly successful director told Coppola he had broken his own film's rules about how to kill a vampire. So Coppola went back and reshot Mina uh, beheading Dracula. So who is the director? Got it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. After the break, we are going to talk about the Stanford. Oh, oh. No, there's no more of that. <laughs> At the, the end. end. At the end. Okay. You have to wait. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Stanford prison experiment when we return. I was doing a little guitar hero there for a moment. <laughs> like lead guitar face, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. Closed it's eyes. The, it's the, the tight dir- lips. It's the dirty metal face. <laughs> yeah. It was dirty, all right. <laughs> you wish you could see it. Okay. <sighs> Hi, Kathy. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk about the Stanford Prison Experiment. And Kathy is definitely taking the lead on this because she was obsessed. Oh, I, ha- I had to... I was advised to read this in my doctoral work. My dissertation chair was, or probably still is, well, and I think she's retired from LAPD, but she's a social, she's a police psychologist, but police psychology is actually social psychology. It's not forensic psychology. And my dissertation was a social psychology piece with like a forensic emphasis. And so I had her for quite a few classes and she recommended, listen, Y'all need to read this. Uh, there's been some movies that have been made on it. Pretty poor movies. Uh, I don't think the movie that came out uh, like 10 years ago or whatever was very good. But I'm also going to talk about the book, The Lucifer Effect, that Philip Zimbardo came uh, out with after years after his study. And the book is entitled The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How G- Good People Turn Evil. And it's based on uh, the Stanford Experiment that he conducted back in 1971. So the Stanford prison experiment was a simulation study. It was designed to examine the effects of situational variables on participants, reactions and behaviors in a two week simulation of a prison environment at the Stanford university uh, at Stanford university. He was a psychology professor, Philip Zimbardo, and he led the research team who ran the study in the summer of 1971 The idea behind Zimbardo's study, I think, is brilliant, but we have to remember that this was conducted in 1971, which means even though there were what are called IRB boards, which are our ethics boards when we run research in schools and universities, that you have to, like when I did my dissertation, I had to present my study to the IRB board, Shannon, you probably had to do the same thing, where they then have to approve 
that's an that it's an ethical study meaning how you're getting your participants how you are presenting the research to the uh, people who could be randomly selected um, all of that stuff needs to be approved so he still had to go through an IRB board he did violate that but the IRB boards were also not as stringent I think as they are now there's certain things that um, regarding humans and animals that we can no longer do that we used to be able to do much easier. So one of the first violations in the IRB agreement was he did not at all advertise this as a social psychology experiment. He advertised it as he was looking for people that uh, had, that wanted to partake in a prison study. (laughs) So when we think about the way that people are selected for research is we're supposed to have some level of random assignment, which means that everyone that wants to become a part of this, it it has an equal chance of being selected. Now you can, I'm not going to go into all the different sample pools, but obviously you can state that you're only looking for males or you, but you have to be pretty upfront about what the study is without completely giving away what's being, and, and that's like a fine balance. But what he did is he sort of manipulated it by saying, well, you know, I don't have to be super upfront, but rather than saying it was a psychology project, he was saying it was more of a prison study. So the people that gravitated towards wanting to be in this study, they have looked at how this literally could have changed the results because they're assuming that the people who wanted to be a part of the study may have already had narcissistic, antisocial traits, things like that, that drew them to this type of study. So that was the number one, that was one of the number one problems. So the validity, the validity just simply means, are we testing what we say we're testing? So if we're measuring a certain variable, is that what we're actually measuring? Or is there something else going on that's giving us a result? And it's not really a valid measure of what we're studying. So we first want to look at the way that he selected his population and it was not, it wasn't ethical and it was deceptive. So then we have the the idea that it's this prison study. We also have to look at their, the fact that there might be something called the situational attribution theory going on or uh, demand characteristics sort of falls in the same family. And basically what that means is people are going to have there could be external factors that could contribute to how someone behaves in a setting. So for us to say that these people acted a certain way because of characteristics about them or the role that they were act, you know, they were asked to play. It's hard to determine if that's what really happened or is it that, you know, the situal situational attribution theory happened, which means the process of attributing someone's behavior to external factors. They know that they're being, that they're under research. They know that there's certain roles that they're expected to play. So these are some of the things that get in the way with the validity of the results. Are we really measuring what we say we're measuring? Then we also want to look at the norming pool. We, it's nor, it was normed on white college males. And that was, you know, that was really what was available at that time. So it's arguable as well that there, there's more than one definition of prison behavior. So we're looking at white cisgender, as far as we know, heterosexual males and how we defined what prison behavior looks like within this specific pool but also really making our definition of prison behavior really narrow. So already there's a lot of issues with the way that this is set up. So what happens is the very first day of the research study, he randomly assigns his pool into half of the population become assigned as police officers and half become assigned as prisoners. Okay. And what they actually do, which I don't believe the participants knew what was going to happen is the people that were assigned the prisoners were actually arrested in their own homes the morning of that study. And they were thrown in back of a cop car from the very first morning. They were thrown into this role without even really knowing what was going to happen to them. So imagine already a very, very jarring experience. Imagine them trying to do this today. No way. (laughs) No No flipping way. No. So 
Participants were recruited from the local community with an ad in the newspapers offering $15 a day to male students who wanted to participate in a a psychological study of prison life. That's all they were told. And so the volunteers were chosen after assessments of psychological stability. So they did some pre-screening and then they randomly assigned to being prisoners or prison guards. Okay. And again, we have to look at how valid are the methods that they actually used. So the volunteers that were selected to be guards were given uniforms specifically to individuate them. And this is really important because I'm going to talk about what, what Zimbardo says about the antisocial effects of anonymity. I'll go into that in a moment. So the volunteers were selected to be guards and were given uniforms specifically to de-individuate them and instructed to prevent prisoners from escaping. They were handed billy clubs. They were handed aviator sunglasses that the prison, prisoners couldn't see their eyes. And then the volunteers were chosen after assessments decided whether they're going to be prisoners or, or prison guards. Okay. Over the following five days, psychological abuse of the prisoners by the guards became increasingly brutal. So much that his associate at the time who ends up becoming his wife, Christina Maslock, visited the conditions, visited the simulation and said, Phil, you got to stop this now. He had become so much a part of the role behind the power differential that he was so obsessed with watching how these two groups became what they had been assigned that, I mean, we're looking at the the prisoners having sleep deprivation, humiliation, you know, they were actually being beaten. There was a day where family was allowed to visit them and you were starting to see the literal psychological breakdown of some of these prisoners. Now, just like we look at, you know, like any sort of traumatic bonding or the Stockholm syndrome, they were actually given the permission to leave, many of them, and they decided to stay. You want to make a comment on that, Shannon? (laughs) (laughs) Trauma bonding. We talk about that a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I imagine still some sort of dissociation with what was really happening. Like, for sure. You know, just Mm -hmm. dissociating from it. I don't know. There's something about pure sadism because the guards turned sadistic. Of course, that situational ethics took over. And I imagine there was something about the sadism that was, you guys are going to want to smack me for this, but that was attractive. That was curious, that was curious to them. That was fascinating to them. Permitted. Without permitted. punishment. Yeah. And I I mean by the prisoners who are being Oh, abused. I see. I see. Yeah. I, I mean. The, like deeper psychological. Yeah, I, think, sure. I feel like there was a deeper psychological structure going on there that might have been mirroring their trauma that might have been, you know, like we could go all different places. I don't know anything about the individuals, but. Yeah. And if you think about the fact that they did psychological assessments of stability before and we don't really know the results of that did they randomly select certain people to be prisoners out yeah, of yeah i imagine the whole damn thing is bias i, I imagine so he created a whole thing that was in 2007 on what you're saying carnaman mcfarland argue that those who applied to participate already had traits of aggression right-wing authoritarianism machiavellianism social dominance orientation yeah and i don't narcissism. think it, any of it was random i don't think he had a, has a valid experiment in general but right and so he would argue that so this is what he says this is on page 24 of the lucifer effect he says i had become interested in the antisocial effects that anonymity uh induced when people felt no one could identify them when they were in a setting that encouraged aggression so do you lean more towards the former or the latter or somewhere in the middle? Both. Yeah. <laughs> There's a foundational piece there, possibly in some of the, me- you'd have to look at each individual person because I, d- I know that there's a group think thing going on as well here where there's certain people that are going to be the forefront of the sadism and go for it. And then there's other people's that are going to follow along mm-hmm. or simply be there for it and not do anything about it. Right. I think you've got all of those, the bystanders. Bystander effect. Yep. Yeah. And so I think it's both because I think it, it depends on, it depends on the person. And I'm sure that some of those people had 
those issues of wanting to work out their rage and perhaps were even abused themselves, et cetera, and had that kind of an instinct to go there and felt safe to do so. And, and also felt like, well, everybody here is there here, but because they want to be here. So if I'm abusing you, then you chose it. And that's an abuser's perspective, right? right? For sure. And then there's going to be other people that wouldn't ev- wouldn't naturally have that, but then seeing it acted out, they would be attracted to it and they would go towards it. And because they're not acting out any kind of sadistic tendencies in a healthy way, as I've said before, there are consensual situations where you can act those out in healthier ways, but they don't have that in their life. It's mm-hmm. 1971, whatever. Yeah. So they're in these, and then there's the bystanders that just simply didn't do anything That's about right. it. Yeah. So. Or probably knew that if they did, they'd be penalized by uh-huh. their, yeah. their other guys. And there's going to be somebody in this group somewhere that had an inkling of, obviously this isn't okay. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, obviously right. we're in an experiment, but this obviously isn't okay because I'm actually witnessing people hitting each other. In other words, they do a lot of experiments where you uh, hear things, hear people being harmed. Right. There's a lot of psychological experiments around this where you actually hear the audio of people being harmed, but they're actually not being harmed, but you believe they are. And then they can study your brain and your reactions and all that, but they're not actually harming people. But these people were seeing people being harmed by their peers. So they knew it was real. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think it's a combination of both. And so I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from the Lucifer effect that uh, describe a little bit more about about what he believed he found and what he concluded. So this is straight out of the book. He says, the individual is the coin of the operating realm in virtually all of the major Western institutions of medicine, education, law, religion, and psychiatry. These institutions collectively help create the myth that individuals are always in control of their behavior, act from free will and rational choice, and are thus personally responsible for any and all of their actions. Unless insane or of diminished capacity, Individuals who do wrong should know that they are doing wrong and be punished accordingly. Situational factors are assumed to be little more than a set of minimally relevant extrinsic circumstances. In evaluating various contributors to any behavior of interest, the dispositionalists put the big chips on the person and the chintzy chips on the situation. That view seemingly honors the dignity of individuals who should have the inner strength and willpower to resist all temptations and situational inducements. Those of us from the other side of conceptual tracks believe that such a perspective denies the reality of our human vulnerability. Recognizing such common frailties in the face of the uh, kinds of situational forces we have reviewed in our journey thus far is that the first step in shoring up resistance to such detrimental influences and in developing effective strategies that reinforce the resilience of both people and communities. So when I read that, what I think about obviously is Nazi Germany. I think about what's going on with the Russian soldiers right now. And I think about what happened in Abu Ghraib with the military soldiers. So I do think there is validity to how situational factors can really brainwash people into, especially if there's like a dehumanizing and de-individualized thing going on, that it's very easy to become immersed in this group think. I mean, I think this is where a lot of people became worried about some of, you know, Trump's movements and the decisions that he made and all of these people who are coming together with these really intense and and all or nothing ways about politics, that there's a danger in that group think. And we can say that, sure, everybody in those groups, there might be a level of narcissism. and But I do think it's more than that. And I do think mm-hmm. that we are heavily influenced by situational forces that, Sometimes it becomes about our own survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that the people in there in this experiment, even though I know it was scheduled to be like a two week experiment, it only lasted six days because they had to pull the plug on it. That's how bad it got. But I know that there must have been in those six days, especially deprivation. I'm sure it's, it's it felt a whole lot longer. Mm-hmm. And also just the rage and anger that, that the prison guards, people playing the prison guards probably got into. It just probably elongated the emotional experience. And, sure. And maybe because, I mean, we're sort of assuming that maybe most of them weren't used to expressing all of that rage. It got overwhelming to be trapped in that, I think, for both sides. 
And so then you get overwhelmed and trapped and angry. And you're a college student that might not have the emotional bandwidth, maturity, integrity, whatever, and doesn't really know themselves. Your brain hasn't even fully fun, you know, fully formed. You're pre 25 years old and you're under all of those circumstances too. And then you, act on that anger in the only way you're being given. Yeah. And some of these guys weren't even students. They were just in the local community without an education at oh, all. Okay. So like you have a mixed bag, oh, wow. right? Yeah. Um, so we don't even know like what are the, you know, social yeah, the backgrounds and the individuals. The other thing that he talks about, which I think is very true. And I've, I've spoken about this in, in other settings and maybe I've mentioned it here on the show before. It's not as relevant on a horror show, but when we think about minorities in society, whether that they be, be the LGBTQ community, um, you know, African-American community, Asian community, any sort of marginalized community, people will live up to what they are told they are or live up to their oppressions. And like he says, without realizing it, we often behave in ways that confirm the beliefs others have about us. Those subjective beliefs can create new realities for us. We often become the other, who the other people think we are in their eyes and in our behavior. So I know I saw this a lot when I worked at the LGBT center and I would be working with a lot of gay identified men who would share some of the behaviors that they would engage in based on what society told them they were. Um, and, and so it'd be like, well, what's the point of trying to have, you know, a serious relationship if I'm not even allowed to get married and I'm just told that I'm this and this and this, you know, all we do is get HIV and use drugs and have promiscuous sex. Why not fucking do that if that's what I'm told I am anyway? So I think that that's obviously a much bigger thing than we're talking about here, but we talked a little bit about, we don't know what the psyche psyches were of the people who were the prisoners, and, you know, was there a part of them, like you were saying earlier, that maybe went, well, this is this is who I am. This is what I deserve. I think the individual psyches were playing a part the whole time. So a couple of um, couple of last things that I'll I'll talk about here are a couple of the different studies that are related to Zimbardo, Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment. So the first one I'm sure you're very familiar with, Shannon, because mm-hmm. you've done a lot of psych, is the Milgram experiment. Mm-hmm. So the Milgram experiment was on obedience to authority figures. Um, and it was also another social psychology experiment conducted by Yale University. All these Ivy Leagues. Yeah. Um, yeah. So making news. They measured the willingness of study participants, men in the age range of 20 to 50 from a diverse range of occupations with varying levels of education to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. Participants were led to believe that they were assisting an unrelated experiment in which they had to administer electric shots, shocks to a learner. These fake electric shocks gradually increased to levels that would have been fatal had they been real. So yeah, this is what I was speaking to earlier. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to say anything? Oh, I was just okay. going to say this is what I was saying earlier where there's a lot of experiments that are done where you think you're inflicting pain, but you're actually not inflicting yeah. pain. And that that's where Zimbardo, I think, went uh, awry. Yeah, because <laughs> he, he really was. He, they, you know, and where the people could see that each other, they were, they were hurting each other, whereas this type of experiment regardless of, you know, its flaws, its ethical considerations, et cetera, which I'm, I have a feeling you're going to speak to. This is the type of thing where, you know, they were delivering high voltage shocks. Yeah. They but believed they weren't they actually were. shocking people. Yeah. They believed they were. Which is a much more, I mean, I don't know about this study, like how bad it was, but that's a much more ethical way to go. Sure. Yeah. Because what ends up happening is you have the, the guy in the room with, you know, the researcher who's telling him every time, uh, every so many seconds to increase the wattage on the shock. And there and were sounds too, you right? You could hear them screaming yeah, in the exactly. other room. And they weren't really shocking that person, but right. the person thought that they were, and they continued to follow what the researcher was telling them to do. And it, yeah. every single one of these guys continued to increase the wattage without any sort of you know, issues around obedience. So again, you know, we could, we could say, well, all of these guys were clearly psychopathic. That's not the case. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, There's, there is something to say about obedience to authority and, you know, and not believing that it's real. And like what I was saying, just a little bit of like, maybe it's not real. Maybe this is a safe environment where I can well, do this. Well, you can't see you the can't people in the see eye. The people. There's definitely an obedience factor. Uh, you know, I don't know 
if you think about your life and you think about you're in a job, you're in a relationship, you're in a friendship, whatever it is, and you think about the amount of times where you actually say, you know, no, that's not okay. I'm not going to do that. Are, they're far less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you actually think about the times, and maybe, you know, maybe you listening, you're the type of person that says that, you know, raises red flags all the time. But most, um, many of the people that I know, it's like they raise a red flag eventually. Right. But sometimes not eventually. Right. And also like far longer than the observer would. In other words, if we're watching these men push the button, we're saying, no, stop. Just like in a horror movie. No, stop. Don't go in the door. Or a game show when you're guessing the answers. And of course, on your couch, sitting watching the game show without your (laughs) crisis fight or flight mode on, you can guess the answers really quickly. Yeah. You know, it's that same thing. It's like when we're the observer, you have one this step removed. Exactly. Yeah. When you're and when, but you're, when you're in it, all that adrenaline that they're feeling. And I don't know. I, I, I find some validity in the fact that like a lot of people would not stop. Well, yeah. And I think in this, in Milgram's study, what makes it um, so much different is that the, the once removed, the, the, easier way to dehumanize because you're not looking at somebody in the face. How different would this be? Maybe not. I don't know if there were like fake physical shocks if going they were, on. And yeah. you were looking, and they were in the same room. Yeah. Right. Actors. Yeah. Sure. And in De Becker's book that I've been talking about on our Patreon stuff, he talks a lot about intimacy and violence. And one of the things that he learned to do when he was unsafe as a kid is a gun is not an intimate weapon, right? You shoot somebody at the second someone starts to walk closer and closer to you and looks you in the eye. People who are not psychopathic will probably stop. Yeah. Or tell you to turn around. Yeah. Or tell you to turn around because there's something about looking at that person in the eye. So anyway, they're very different experiments, but obedience to authority, this, that's what this is really about. And, you know, I think it's, it's very, easy to say that Zimbardo got lost in this. He allowed himself to get immersed in the study and really picked up on a, on a lot of what the subjects were going exactly to, instead of being removed. And it took Christina yeah. as an observer to come in and go, what is going on? This has got to stop. And that's, that's and they a, shut yeah, it down. That's interesting. Cause that's often the, as a therapist, that's what we mirror. Yeah. A natural and logical response to whatever someone's going through, you know, as yeah. opposed to the one that's in it. He was really in it. He was really in it. The only thing I can offer additionally to this is that, thank you for that, Kathy. I thought that was really interesting. Just talking about the validity and the different pieces of it. I saw Zimbardo speak a few years back at the APA uh, conference. It was in Washington, I think. And all I can tell you is that, you know, he's an interesting odd duck. I've heard that. (laughs) But what I can tell you is that I can see how he, he did this. I can, he's very charismatic. He's got that narcissistic, and I don't know if it's negative or positive. I'm not saying he's a narcissist. I'm just saying he's got enough narcissism to stand in front of 300 psychologists, right? And be very charismatic and entertaining and funny. Sure. So I could see how that plays a part in saying no to authority, right? Like they were yeah. all recruited from him and, right. and what the, what kind of bargains he made with them, what kind of personality he brought to the table with each one of them. He, as a researcher, played a part in this. He was not the kind of, you know, slight build, average looking Joe with the glasses that's got the lab coat on asking you to do an experiment. He was like an, a charismatic guy. So I imagine that might have played into it, but I don't know. Yeah, that's just, no, just it's throwing true. it out there. <laughs> Thank true. you so much for that. We're going to come back after a very brief moment and talk about our watches, our movie watches and books, if there are any. So we'll be right back. <laughs> Hello. 
I wanted to hear the whole thing that time so I could do my air guitar. I, I appreciate that. Did you? Well, and I thought it would give you a chance to eat something as well. She was having a snack. I was chewing a couple of uh, Chex Mix. I know. I thought it might give you an opportunity to that. chew it down. We have started and are a chunk of the way through on The Exorcist now. So good. It's so good. And a great palate cleanser. I am. I have washed away the last book completely Oy. because The Exorcist is written really well. If you haven't, if you have not read the classic Exorcist novel, it is well written and well constructed and a pleasure to read. It's really good. Yeah. You have a book, too, that you're... I am reading a book. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm reading. I'm so glad. By Nicole Trope. Oh. It's named The Family Across the Street. I brought it up a few weeks ago, but I hadn't started I remember. reading it. It's really interesting. I love these suburban horror books because it's supposed to be this normal neighborhood. And it's, anytime I read something that's supposed to be safe. Yeah, it's... Yeah, and it mirrors your growing up to the suburban. Mirrors growing up, mirrors like or um, this feeling that it should be safe and something yeah, unwanted, like or yeah. yeah, or or why I like all of the Grady Hendrix books. Yeah, and Stephen right? King plays Stephen a lot King. with that. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty good so far. It's not a long read. It's you know like two hundred and fifty pages. It's basically about this neighborhood where you get to know all of the different characters at the beginning through like they introduce Logan, they introduce Gladys. They all play a part. They're, they don't all necessarily know each other, but you start to get their backgrounds and um, understand why they're so invested in trying to figure out what's going on in this house across the street. What you do know from the reader's standpoint is that there's a family of four, mom, dad, and two kids. And at the very beginning of the book, and I'm not going to give anything away that isn't given away right away, is you find out that uh, Gladys, the neighbor, suspects something's really weird, like the blind blinds are still drawn, and it's mm. early. Usually, the kids are out running around, and the neighbors don't know this, and the UPS driver doesn't know this. But you, as the reader, find out that Dad has them locked inside, guns to their heads, and is about to commit familicide. And so as the reader, you're getting the inside story and all of like the different vantage points of the people in the neighborhood and what their background stories are and why they might be invested or why there might be a pull to try to figure out something's going on in this house. So it's very suspenseful that way. And so far, I mean, I'm only about 60 pages in. Um, It's keeping my attention. It's kind of fun. Yeah, like the setup is, that's what you're still in, right? The setup. And so it's it's gripping you. I love that. Yeah, and it takes place in Australia. So some of the words and stuff are kind (laughs) of cool. That's kind of fun. And you like the setting. I mean, picking a setting is often why we pick books, right? Like, Yeah, and it's like the, you know, the what is the seemingly perfect family with a white picket fence people are just like yeah but they don't ever like come over for barbecue yeah and the they don't. sus the yeah. sus the mm-hmm. smish so so far so good great well that sounds fun have you ever read that author before i have not okay cool i don't know if they it came up as, else, a, as a recommended based on some of the other things that i read so yeah no i love that that's always nice just like uh any streaming service you yeah know, you're watching shutter and it's like for you and then you <laughs> right and and be, being that we're reading the exorcist and i've got two other heavy psych books and i wanted something that was like kind of quick and fun and not too deep yeah, yeah yeah easy read nice i wanted to mention that i watched actually one of my favorite horror movies the other day now i believe it was last week or the week before i talked about how shutter dropped a bunch of french extremity horror and it, I think it was their March drop. You know, they have themed drops of movies. And that that month, it was the French extremists. And they're still all on there. And I had mentioned watching Inside, which I had actually never seen, which was is French extreme horror. And I talked about uh, her being one of my favorite psychopaths. And this one is actually just one of my favorite horror movies. Now, if you know... If you guys know anything about my taste or you listen regularly, you can imagine <laughs> that it's probably depressing. It's probably dark. It's probably complex. Like there's a depth of trauma, something going on in that way. It's probably well acted. I do like a, a good script. Like I like the plot. To, you know, like I need it to be a good movie and then also basically pretty fucked up. 
that's usually you th- would you say that's true i would say many that's of very my favorites true. Yeah. <laughs> even the exorcist is one of my favorite like classic horror movies and that's a pretty messed up movie so i mean it deals with child children being i mean it's not even reading the book it's like yeah the exorcist is pretty messed up anyway so this movie is called martyrs and it's from 2008 and i am talking about the french version of this movie americans remade it it's directed by pascal laguerre i do not have a french accent so i did my best can you try (laughs) i tried i said laguerre no Uh, you did not i did. did right there i did a little bit okay fine pascal or pascal Probably. Just go. Shh. A young woman's quest for revenge against the people who kidnapped and tortured her as a child leads her and her best friend, also a victim of child abuse, on a terrifying journey into a living hell of depravity. Now, here's the thing. I remember for years I avoided watching this movie, even though I was sort of always attracted to wanting to watch it because it's because it gets very good reviews. It's very well known and all of that. So I did avoid it for a long time because I don't necessarily, I don't like torture porn movies, although I have a much better tolerance for them now than I used to. And some of them are actually quite good and very, very effective. I just don't like them to be gratuitous. Yeah. And I also like them to have something else going on and they're saying something. And that's why I would say, Martyrs is one of my favorite horror films is because there is so much more going on in this. And even to the fact that uh, twice, two different times in this movie, it turns to a slightly different direction and deepens the plot. So you think you're watching one kind of movie, it goes and goes, you're gripped, you're gripped, then it shifts into a slightly different movie where it's just it's like up to the stakes and deepened and then it makes a second shift to an even deeper sort of it's very nihilistic yes it could be seen as depressing it isn't something to it some people will absolutely and i have done this before like have to watch it in two or three sittings because it's it's dark and it it there is a depth there that will make you uncomfortable it's actually a scary movie (laughs) it's actually scary and it is considered french extremity so you know if you watched it as a double feature with inside you'd be you'd need a cookie after or something it's it's but you know bleak dreary sad it's got all of that stuff except it deals with a lot of bigger issues that i find very interesting in horror and one of them in ends up being stuff around religious extremism stuff around how we how we manifest our trauma but yeah and there's enough of a gross out and enough like practical effects body horror you know gross out kind of factor but it but i it, i never feel like it's gratuitous in this movie okay i would recommend it highly and i and I'm saying more than I usually do because I think it's a movie that if you're going to watch any of the French extremists, I mean, I really love high tension. I love inside. There's a lot of them, but if you have shutter and you want to make your way through that, those are kind of the three that I would probably prioritize is martyrs inside and high tension. So far I haven't made my way to a few of the other ones, but anyway, high tension reminds me of the novel. Is it, intensity or high intensity but i still wonder if that's where the influence was it's like exactly the same exact story except the the book was written years before yeah and you could relate it to audition which is of course one of my other favorite horror movies that actually frightened me i mean it's a very different kind of well not i mean it's a very different kind of movie but it is extreme in that sense and there is torture but again it's just enough. It's enough to make you wince and want to go to the bathroom during it and all of that. But it's not gratuitous, given what you find out in the movie is sort of the premise and what's really going on. Like mm-hmm. once you once that's revealed, you realize like why all of that's happening. Okay. So. Well, I'm not going to go uh, anywhere near that profound. I'm going to go to a movie that actually scared the crap out of me and it was fun and it got terrible reviews, I think, because it's an independent film. Uh, some, of the view, some of the 
reviews though said this is one out of like the 20 independent horror that come came out this year that you actually should watch so there were a few people on the same pages as i am it's called um dawn of the beast came out in 2021 2022 depending on what you look up a group of graduate students get more than they bargained for while searching for the legendary bigfoot not only is he real but there's something far more evil lurking in the shadows uh the wendigo so this movie literally scared the crap out of me, and I don't know why. The, the sound was good. We must find out. The sound was good. It is low budget. I was reading some of the reviews. They're like, this is messy. There's too many characters. I'm like, first of all, there are not too many characters. I have There's seen like, it, by the way. Just Did you uh, like it? Uh, you know. I loved it. I don't know why, so but I glad. loved it. I'm really glad. Because That's I think awesome. sometimes these trash i mean you've seen it i can't bring a movie here you haven't seen but it's like it, it it's literally i was watching it and i, I was pleasantly surprised because i thought it was going to be crap yeah that's great um, and it scared the crap out of me that's awesome yeah awesome so you know it's low it is low budget for them to say that there's too many uh, monsters going on that it's confusing they mm. should read manhunt uh because <laughs> it really wasn't there was you weren't Bigfoot, confused <laughs> and then a bunch of the wendigos all over the place um that was really as as deep as it got so i don't know why that confused people but i think what got me is i had the sound on really loud oh, okay and that, that really helps the sound, honestly. my god the sound for whatever reason i jumped a few times and i thought it was fun i think that's great and there was the only reason why I've probably seen this movie is because there was a moment where I was having a Bigfoot moment and I watched all. Yeah. The, and I a lot of them are dumb. I watched. Well, yeah. And I, you know, it's it's Bigfoot, but they talk about it as a Wendigo. And as you guys know, I try to find I've been looking for a good Wendigo movie and Antlers was the closest. I've oh, come. yeah, that was good. <laughs> That's the closest I've come. There were there were some cheesy ones before that that were the the bar and now Antlers is the bar. So whether you like that movie or not, that's still the Wendigo bar, in my opinion. Right. Because <laughs> we haven't found anything better. But no, right. oh, I'm glad you really liked it. I did. It was fun. <laughs> well, I did a so after the martyrs, I thought I would talk about a palate cleanser movie. <laughs> okay. I also saw the movie Dog. Oh, how was it? It was really darn cute, and also emotional. You know, it wasn't just stupid. So this is Channing Tatum in a movie called Dog from this from this year, and it's billed as a comedy, and. Yes, there are definitely funny parts because Channing Tatum can't help but be funny. Mm -hmm. He's just a funny guy. He's like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, he's just a funny guy. I, and I don't think he overdoes it or anything, but yeah. he's a war hero who's got his own difficulties. He's probably got a TBI. He's having seizures. He's uh, can't get a job. You know, they show him in one of the first scenes, like working at a subway and some nerdy kids giving him shit about how he's making the sandwich. And you just you're just like, oh, dude, I'm right. so sorry. Yeah. You know, you feel for him immediately. It's a good yeah. scene to represent that. And then he comes together and I won't tell you how, but he comes together with this dog, a German shepherd. So I'm biased. One of my favorite breeds. Pretty much the reason why I wanted to watch the movie, <laughs> even yeah. though I like Channing Tatum a lot. So yeah. that those two together, my favorite dog and and a, and a great male actor who's yeah. funny and and incredibly handsome. Like what? Yeah, what? That's a no brainer for me. But he's it was fun, he's fun to watch. Yeah, but it was also a palate cleanser because I had watched Martyrs recently, mm -hmm. so I'm like, I'm gonna watch something light today type of thing. It's a feel good movie. So if you're in the mood for a feel good movie where the dog does not die, thank God. I mean, that's always like why I don't go into those. Well, I, like, always, I, I always spoil that for people because I, I as a dog that. lover and I think you as a dog lover and any animal lover I know wants to know prior. Yeah, because I don't want to go into that. There's a whole website called Does the Dog Die? <laughs> and you can go Did on ice there. ice make that? No, you can go on there and Pepper and I have referenced it on many occasions because we'll be watching a movie and you'll see that there's a dog and you want to know, you want to know, you want to be prepared and that website will tell you if the dog dies or not. And then you can just be, and then you can just know if it says, yes, the dog dies. You go like, okay, okay, the dog's going to die. And I so like now I don't have to wait in right. tension. And that's it's not horrible. the kind of horror I want. No. Anyway, dog doesn't die. It's a feel good movie, like I said. So if I say it's feel good, then nobody you care about dies in the movie. <laughs> Uh, but it's gotten, I mean, it's gotten pretty good reviews. It's gotten great audience reviews because it's exactly... It's not like what you want it to it's be. It's exactly what it says it is. Yeah. It's not any more complicated than that, 
but it's also not i watched another movie mm, that was like kind of like a hallmark movie in a way but i think it was netflix and it was it had ruby in the title and it was a dog movie as well and it was something around veterans and dogs i think they've got this idea that you know they watch all of these videos that everybody sees about their dogs reuniting with their with their military members and (laughs) so then they made all these (laughs) movies like that but and that one wasn't as good. Like that one just wasn't as good a movie. Mm-hmm. It was still feel good and everything, but it was kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one's actually, I've heard good things about it's it. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, lastly, I would just like to say that I did finally see the, the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh yeah. I mean, it was okay. Yeah. Um, that's exactly. But there were two, there were C two plus. scenes, <laughs> two scenes that I thought were good. Mm. Um, one was the scene that they never would have been able to do in the seventies, which is when Leatherface gets on the bus and they all turn their, their cell phones on yeah. to record it. Yeah. I mean, it just shows like, I mean, this is a whole generation. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like, it, uh, that's what people do. They'll put themselves, <laughs> their own safety into jeopardy, get the damn thing recorded. Look, a killer. But the- yeah. And they're all on their phones. And then the last, uh, I, I thought it did stick the ending when the, the beheading at the end is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and those were the two moments where I went, okay, that kind of made up for like the two hours of it not being that great. But those were, those were some good moments. Well, I'm glad you liked it. That's the one that came out this year. Yeah. Yeah. The ending is where, the ending was good, I thought. Okay. Yeah. The ending's where it sort of lost me. Yeah. I mean, it's very, <laughs> so it's, it's very, of, very different. Yeah. We have a little bit of opposing opinions on that. And that's fine. It's like... I uh, think it's because I wanted that character gone because she kind of annoyed me. No, I understand. Yeah. I totally understand. So, yeah. Did you have the reaction to Sally, like, not being used as... Well? That's one of the things I said in my review several mm-hmm. weeks ago about how the character of Sally, they brought her back, like, the Jamie Lee Curtis of this franchise. And yeah. then didn't use her yeah yeah i hate when they do they just it's like they tease a little bit just oh my god it was all over the promos it was the whole thing like oh we're gonna get to see sally's revenge like they kind of did it like that and then they just didn't use her to the best i hate that yeah that sucked just just so so they can sell it (laughs) right okay now now (laughs) we need some answer i need some answers lady okay i'll give you some all right, answers to the horror facts with Kath, ladies and Let me gentlemen. Find the one we're on here. I have so many. There's a couple of these I think I know. Okay, uh, I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. Number one. Okay, George Romero's first job behind the camera. I'm reading it like that because I have it like in because you're very dramatic. I am. Was on what <laughs> children's show? Mr. Rogers. Yes, yes, that's one of the ones I thought I knew. What famous actor and Academy Award winner was offered the lead male role in Hocus Pocus? Uh, I don't know. Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, hello. Number three. In which movie is the killer's identity foreshadowed as Don't Fear the Reaper plays in the background of the first scene? Hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know that. I don't even. I don't Scream. even know. Scream. Oh, really? In the bedroom when he's talking to Nev, when when uh, Billy's talking to yes, um, it's playing in the back when he's talking about the horror movies and whatever. But the other so eighties. The other one that they could have used for that was um, in Halloween. It's playing when they're driving in the the station wagon, but it's not the first scene. Yeah, I mean it's a good one. Number four. I think that's also why Scream uses it because it's an homage to all those. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, in order to film the premonition scene in Final Destination 3, the actress had to ride the roller coaster how many times? 26. Yes. That's the one I knew because when we did the series, I just... We talked about it? Uh, yeah, well, I just happened to learn to that it. fact. Well, look, see, and you remembered it. <laughs> no, it's not possible. Me remember a fact? Mm. Number five, Shannon, number five. <laughs> the original ending of Bram Stoker's Dracula had Mina plunging a Bowie knife into Dracula's heart. When Coppola offered a private screening to his close friend, this famous and incredibly successful director told Coppola he had he had broken his own film's rules about how to kill a vampire. So Coppola went back and reshot Mina beheading Dracula. So this is a guess. And I just thought about like who Coppola's contemporaries might have been. So my guess is George Lucas. Yes. Oh, 
Yeah, yes. good guess. How cool is that, though? Yes. That Lucas was like, you can't end it like this. <laughs> He's like, dude. There, I, there were like, it was a screening at his home or something. He's like, you can't. No, you this broke is not, the rule. You broke the your audience, own rule. The audience yeah. is going to And Lucas would pick that up because his stories are so of course. intricate, right? Well, and you have to be, you can't betray the audience. You nope. can't change the rules in the last minute. So smart. Well, and that's why we have friends. Which kids. one was our patron? Oh, so... I have to guess a patron and which one would be hmm. number three. And who is it? Mm. Ice pepper. It's one of her oh, favorites. Oh, Nice. But I got the movie. I got the question, right? You got the question. Right. Oh shit. Yeah. That's like what I did last time. I got one of the two. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Thank you. Pepper stump me. Yeah. I, I won't get the person probably. <laughs> Ever. Oh, no. Last time I got the person, but not which question it was. Exactly. That's right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We very much appreciate you. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. 